You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. Turn to Matthew chapter 6 as we continue to walk through the model prayer and then kind of reinforce that with the Psalms. We come to a phrase in the model prayer today that um, may very well be one of the hardest phrases for us to deal with and wrestle with. Uh, Last week, I think one of the most misunderstood phrases is give us daily bread. But I think this phrase is the one that um, that we struggle with. So let's look at it, verse 9. We'll read the model prayer again. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Father, you invite us to follow you. And Lord, when you stood on the side of the water and you called for the disciples to come and follow and fish and that you would make them fishers of men. Father, you called for our devotion. You called for our full surrender. You called for our commitment to you. And Father, you didn't leave us to do this on our own. You gave us the Holy Spirit to live inside of us and and to empower us and to encourage us and to strengthen us and to give us purpose and meaning, but not just to try to figure it out on our own, but Lord, to be reminded of your word, of the light, and to walk with you. But Lord, we know that one of the primary functions of the Holy Spirit living inside of each believer, each follower of you, one of his roles in us is to bring correction when it's needed. And Father, as Pastor Bobby's already said, shame Guilt, even lying to ourselves about what we've done, trying to justify it by saying the phrase that we've all said so many times that everybody's doing it. But Father, you invite us to walk with you. And Lord, there are times of, that there are things that we allow, that we allow to, get, to come between you and I. And Lord, as we look at your word this morning, Pray that you bring those things to the surface, that we would not justify them, we would not excuse them, we would not sidestep them, we would not lie to ourselves about what has really happened, but Father, we would take full responsibility. For some, Lord, that means salvation this morning, for the very first time putting their faith in you. For others, Lord, it's repentance, which means to turn, to have a change of mind, which leads to a change of heart, which leads to a change in our actions and our behavior. So, Father, I pray that you would guide us in your word this morning, that you would be exalted, and, Father, that freedom would be the result. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. There are 62 chapters in the Old Testament dedicated to this man's biography, his life. As a matter of fact, you'd be hard-pressed to find any single individual in the Old Testament that has this much focus Not only the Old Testament, in the New Testament, there are 59 references in the New Testament, more than any other, more than Moses, more than Daniel. In the New Testament, he's referred to more than anyone else, as far as a character in Scripture. This man, 
called by God at age 15 to be the king of a nation that was splintered, the king of a nation that, quite frankly, had been under very poor leadership, or eventually would be under the leadership of Saul. This man who would spend a large portion of his life on the run from the reigning king. And eventually, this man would unify the kingdom. The 12 tribes of Israel would be unified. Not only that, they would continue to take the land that God had promised to them. And not only that, they would become one of the most wealthy groups of people on the face of the earth. And at one point, they were slaves. And it's under this man's leadership that that was accomplished. And of course, through God's power in his life. He became one of the most influential men, not only of his day, but even since. We continue to look at this guy's life. If this guy were alive today, you'd probably find him on the cover of every leadership magazine and every influential magazine there is. You would, you would have every journalist trying to interview him because they'd all want to know about his leadership style and all that he's been able to accomplish. Um, You would want to be on his team. You would want to be with this guy serving and doing what he was doing. He wrote 73 of our psalms. He was a musician, a warrior, a leader, a king, and of course I'm talking about David. As a matter of fact, David's kingdom will lead to Messiah. But at 50 years old, and you knew this but was coming, right? But at age 50... He makes some choices that is absolutely going to wreck his family and wreck his kingdom. And it's all on him. What's the two things we know about David? There are two things that we know about David. Number one, that moment he's standing in that valley facing a giant, right? We've been been learning about that and taught that since we were kids in Sunday school. And we know that story, right? Here's this little guy, this teenager, standing before a giant, who, depending on what Sunday school teacher you had, was either seven foot, eight foot, nine foot, or 30 foot tall. A little bit of a joke there. Um, And he's standing in the valley, and he's got nothing but a sling and a few stones. And of course, the giant dies, and David takes his head off. Man, what a powerful story. But there's another story you know about David, and it's not his conquest, it's not his leadership skills, it's not all the conquests that he had. I dare say there's another story you know. And it has to deal with one day when David is 50 years old. I've got any 50-year-olds in the house, you might want to pay attention here. I don't know if David's going through midlife or whatever it was in his day, but I think it's interesting that where he was in life, he's at the pinnacle of power, he's at the pinnacle of money, he's at the pinnacle of military might. And David, at 50 years old, should be off with his warriors fighting the battle. He should be off in the field with his leaders fighting because that was the season of year that they would go out and fight and do the conquest and gain the land and and do what God had called them to do. And that's what David had been doing for much of his life, but not this time, not during this season. For some reason, David's hanging around home while all of his warriors go out to fight the battle. That was odd for David. Because David's a warrior, why is he not out with his warriors? Well, he's taking a little walk on his rooftop one day. And he looks across onto this other rooftop, and who does he see? He sees a woman by the name of Bathsheba, but make no mistake about it, this is not the first time that his eyes have looked at her. 
This is not like one day David just gets up one morning and goes, you know what, I'm just going to throw the whole thing down the garbage bin here. I'm just going to blow my whole life up, blow my family up, blow my integrity up. He didn't get up one day and just decide to do that. As a matter of fact, when we read the life of David leading up to this, we find that there were all kinds of warning signs that were leading us to understand that there's something going on in the heart of this king. As a matter of fact, in 2 Samuel 3, there's just one little paragraph there. I won't go to it, but you can look it up later. One little paragraph there. And in that one little paragraph, it makes this statement. It says that, that David, during this time of wealth and power, began to add more wives and concubines to his household. Now, David had been told very clearly, the nation of Israel had been told very clearly to not do what he's doing. Not only that, when we read the story up to this point of Bathsheba, we find David doing some amazing, incredible things. But there in the text, you find this little nuance that David seems to be taking more and more credit for what God's doing and not giving God credit for it. So the warning light is on. I had a friend, a real close friend when I was in community college, when I was uh, learning to become an electrician before God called me into ministry. This is years before that. Me and this guy, man, we spent a lot of time together. We'd ride motorcycles together and... Uh, he had, this, he had this Ford Ranger pickup, and uh, he didn't take too good a care of that truck. And one day I got in it to move it because he was parked in a parking place and it needed to be moved. So I, I get in his truck, and I crank it up, and I notice that on the dash, down here on the lower side next to the speedometer, he's got a piece of black electrical tape over the, over the, the, the uh, dash there. So we're riding somewhere, and you know I can smell smoke burning in the truck. I, I tell the truck's not doing too good. I say, hey, Todd, I said, what you got that black tape over, over on your dash for? And he said, because the check engine light comes on. So here's his solution. The check engine light comes on. I'm just going to put a piece of black tape over it and imagine that it's not there. Well, eventually the truck blows up, and you know he has to completely trash the entire vehicle. You see, there was warning lights coming on in David's life. And he was ignoring them. Maybe you've got some warning lights that are coming on. Maybe there's a light coming on on the dash of your life that's going, hey, um, you got a problem here? And if you, if you don't deal with this problem, uh, your life's going to blow up. Your family, your job, your integrity. David's out on the rooftop. The, light, the warning light has already been on. He's on the rooftop. He looks across, and there's a woman bathing on the roof. And, of course, his eyes linger a little too long. And, and him being king, he's got a lot of power and a lot of influence. So guess what happens? This sets into motion a whole bunch of stuff. He decides he wants that woman. He decides he's going to have that woman. And lust then leads to lies. Not only lies to his leadership, but lies to himself. Those lies eventually lead to adultery. That adultery leads to more lies. Those lies lead to murder. David himself didn't pick up the knife or the sword and kill Bathsheba's husband, but he put Bathsheba's husband on the front line and told his soldiers to pull back so that he would certainly die. So here's, here's the trajectory here of David's life. Remember, David described as a man after God's own heart. The only man to ever get that description. Leader of God's people who've been set apart by God, and here's this guy on his rooftop desiring for a woman to lust led to lies, the lies led to adultery, the adultery led to murder, and that's David's life now. Don't you think for a moment 
that that can't happen to you. You see, I think one of the lies that Satan equally tells is, oh, that'll never happen to us. Oh, we can engage in whatever we want to. The warning light is flashing. We got multiple lights on the dash, and we're just putting tape over it going, oh, it's going to be okay. It won't happen to me. Oh, yes, it will. And if you're a child of God, make no mistake about it, God is no respecter of persons. A man shall reap whatever he sows. So David has now made a mess of his life. But what's interesting is, is this going to take 12 more months? Yeah, you heard that correctly. From the time he gets into this mess, and by the way, Bathsheba gets pregnant, he moves her into her, his household, Uriah is murdered, uh, killed on the front lines. There's a whole bunch of other parts of this story that I'm not going to get into, but he lies on top of lies, on top of lies, on top of lies, to try to cover his tracks, to try to, to, try to make something that's wrong right, and here he is. He's got Bathsheba in his household now, and he's just moved on. He's moved on with life. And there's 12 months that passes. Before we get too much further into this, I want to make something very, very clear. David's sin, as bad as it was, his sin is no different than ours. Though it be several thousand years ago when David got into this mess, I don't want us thinking today that somehow because of our technology, because of our buildings, because of the church, because of, of following Jesus, that somehow his sins are so much more worse than ours that he was the bad guy and we're the good guys. Uh, Satan is really good at telling us that lie, that we're, we're good, we're okay, we're not evil. Yeah, we got some bad things going on, but we're not all that bad. Trust me when I tell you, the same sin that was in David's heart is the same sins that we're struggling with today, lust, dishonesty. Jesus said that if you hate a brother or a sister in your heart to such a degree that you're actually committing murder in your heart towards another person, that if you look at another person with lust, that you've already committed adultery, that's what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. So let's make sure we're all on the same page this morning. The fact of the reality is, is nothing has changed since David walked on that rooftop. And our hearts have the potential and the capacity to do this and a lot more. So what should we do as Christ followers? What, what should we do when, when we are confronted with our own guilt and our own sin and our own disobedience? What, what should we do with that? We'll turn to Psalm 51. Because this is David's response once he gets confronted. Now I've got to give you the background of, of why this psalm came to be. So Psalm 51 and I want you to look at this little heading right next to, probably in your Bible or on your app. It might be listed in with the verse, or it may be up next to the chapter number in your Bible. But usually it has a different font or a different word type print. And in Psalm 51, you should see this near the, at the very top. It says this, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So what's the setting? The setting is... David writes this psalm after he's confronted by a guy named Nathan the prophet. But what I want you to understand is, is that from the time he committed the sin with Bathsheba and took Uriah's life intentionally and all the lies of the part of that story, 12 months have passed. I would imagine that during those 12 months that there's a whole lot of talk in the kingdom. And then one day, David gets a knock on the door. It's Nathan, his friend, his, his prophet, right? 
on any other day, when a prophet comes and knocks on your door, you would usually be like, oh, this ain't good. Because usually when the prophet shows up, it usually doesn't go very well. But on this day, Nathan comes in, talks to David, and here's what Nathan shares with David. And one of the most poignant moments in all of Scripture, I don't know what the setting was, but maybe, maybe David and Nathan are sitting down for a cup of coffee. I don't know, but they're just going to have a conversation. And Nathan starts out by telling a story. And he says to David, hey, David, there was a rich man and a poor man. This rich man had everything that he could ever possibly want. He's got wealth, got lots of animals, got a nice big house, bank account full of money, he's got it all. But then there's this poor man, and he has nothing. He's got a family, but he's poor. But one thing that this poor man has that is one of the most precious things that he has is this one little lamb that he has. And he's turned this lamb into a pet. And this pet, the Bible describes, and Nathan's story describes that that this, that this poor man would actually feed this lamb from his own cup and his own plate. That's how close this poor man was to this one little lamb. As a matter of fact, in the text it says, in 2 Samuel 12, that this lamb had become almost like a daughter to this poor man. So you get this picture of this just beautiful story. And then Nathan says, one day the rich man has a visitor, has a guest that shows up. And well, the custom of the day, if you have a guest show up, you got to cook them a meal. you gotta, you got to do right by this guest. And in Israelite culture, that's what you did. So what you're going to do is you're, as a rich man, you're going to go out to one of your flock, and you're going to kill one of your animals, and you're going to bring it in to go have a, a feast and, and celebrate this guest that you have. But that's not what the rich man did. Nathan says to David, David, let me tell you what this rich man did. Even though he had everything that he needed, he goes and finds the poor man. And he goes and he takes the lamb from the poor man who has nothing, takes the lamb, slaughters it, and feeds it as a party for his guest. Oh man, David's infuriated. Oh, I would imagine that David edges up to the close to the edge of his seat. And, and David, in all of David's righteousness, in all of David's power, in all of David's anger, he looks at Nathan and he says, tell me who this guy is. This guy deserves to die. Well, Nathan has set the hook. And in four words, Nathan looks at David and said, David, you are the man. You see, David is the rich man, has everything he could possibly ever want. Uriah is the poor man, only has a few things, and what he does have is very precious to him. And the most precious thing that Uriah had was his wife Bathsheba. And then one day on David's door, the rich man on David's door, one day there's a knock on David's door. It actually happens on the rooftop. David's guest is lust. Lust shows up at David's house, and lust begins to turn his eyes towards the only precious thing that Uriah had, his wife. And lust will take you further than you ever want to go. Just like greed, anger, it'll take you down a destructive path. And David takes what's most precious to Uriah and takes it for himself. And not only that, David kills the poor man. In reality, David, you are the man. If you read that account in 2 Samuel 12, you'll find that that David's heart is broken. All of the weight of everything he done comes down upon him right then. The reality is, is not only does Nathan know, but God knows. 
But I would offer to you that, that David has known that all along. During the 12 months of his time, after committing this sin, there is no shock in David's heart or in his life that God knows and God disapproves. You see, you know this as well as I do. When you step out of line, when you move in rebellion against God, it's not as though it's something out there that you're unaware of. No, you know it, don't you? That's what it means to be following Jesus. When you follow Jesus and he's your Lord, the Holy Spirit begins to bear down on you. Listen to what David says about this. We'll walk through this psalm. Let's see how David responds. Verse 1, have mercy on me, O God. He doesn't waste any time, does he? He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. You see those three phrases right there? Blot out, wash me, cleanse me. That, that phrase, blot out, is an interesting one. If you go back and you look at how that phrase is used in the Old Testament, there's one thing that's going to get your attention right off the bat. That Hebrew word was used by God when he was talking to Noah. When, when God had called Noah and his family to build the ark, and he was telling Noah what he was about to do, he says to Noah, Noah, I am going to what? Blot out humanity because of their sinfulness. What does it mean to blot something out? It means to, to wipe the slate clean. It means to, to erase it as though it never happened. And here's what David is saying. David is saying to God, God, if you would, make it as though I never made this mess to start with. That's a big request, isn't it? Because David is suffering under the circumstances of his, of his own foolishness. And if, if anything, he wishes he could go back. I wish I could tell you of all the times I have sat in my office or at a coffee shop or at McDonald's and had a conversation. I'm going to pick on the guys here for just a moment. Because that's most of my conversations. I cannot tell you how many conversations I have had with men over the last 15 years who sat right in front of me with crocodile tears saying they wish they had not met that woman. I wish I had not went to that hotel. I wish I had not looked at that stuff online. I wish I had not engaged with that old flame that I had in high school. And they are sitting there, and they're wishing beyond all things that they could blot out all that had happened in their life. And I have to look at them and go, God will forgive you, but the circumstances, yeah, that may last for a while. He says, blot out my transgressions. Then he says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. That word wash is used 35 times up until Psalm 51. So from Psalm 51 back to Genesis, 35 times. Of those 35, overwhelmingly, all 35 of those times are used in the reference to ceremonial washing of clothes, which is interesting. I found this incredible. I look at this word all back through the Old Testament from Psalm 51 back, and I find that in Leviticus and Numbers, it's talked about when, when, when the Israelites had these responsibilities to, to cleanse themselves, one of the things they had to do was they, they, for example, I'll give you one of the laws. It says that if, if they had to touch a body, a dead body, there was all this ritualistic stuff that they had to do to, to be, be clean before God. And one of the things they had to do is they had to wash their clothes. When David looks at what he's done, he sees a stain on his life. A stain that he can't correct, a stain that he can't wash out. Some of you probably remember this uh, just by the age bracket you're in, but a long time ago before there were washing machines, you had a washboard. And you'd put your clothes or take them down to the river and you'd rub that on that washboard. It would, the board was meant to, 
to aggravate those clothes and to scrub out those stains. That's exactly what David is asking for. He's saying to God, God, I have a stain on my life and I can't get it off. And God, what I need you to do is I need you to take me and I need you to wash me and cleanse me and get rid of this stain because I know the depths of what I've done. And then he says this, he says, cleanse me from my sin. He says, cleanse me. That, that word, if you go back and look, it's ceremonial. In other words, to have that relationship with God, the Israelites had to do these certain steps. And that word cleanse is used multiple times in Leviticus to say that if we're going to walk with God, that God is a holy God and we're not. And in this Old Testament system, there was no atoning death of Jesus yet. So there were things that these people were asked to do to walk in fellowship with God. And David says here, I am not in fellowship with you because I'm dirty, I'm stained, I have got this all over my life, and there is nothing I can do to fix it. Listen, David's past failures haunted him. So what was he calling out? He was calling out, God, plot him out. Wipe the slate clean. David's, not only was David's past haunting him, but the current guilt that he was feeling, the shame that he was feeling, he calls out and he says, God, could you wash me? And then the separation that he was feeling from God, he calls out to him and he says, God, could you just clean me up? I can't go back and make it right. I can't go back and make different choices. I, 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 am, I am a sinner before you. I am broken. I am stained. And I can't fix it. Listen to what David says next. He says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. You see, that's exactly what Satan doesn't tell you. What he doesn't tell you is, is that when you engage in this temptation that he's putting in front of you, how long that lingers in your heart and in your mind. It's like every day you get up and you think about it. Every day you get up and you consider the fact that I've done this wrong. And every day you try to fill it with something else. Every day you try to watch enough Netflix to make it go away. You watch enough Amazon Prime to try to entertain it away. But it's still there, isn't it? To try to drink it away with alcohol, to try to smoke it away with marijuana, to try to shoot it away with, with meth, but it doesn't work, does it? Because it's always there. It's always lingering. That shadow of guilt is always over your head. And David says, it's always with me. The murder of Uriah, the adultery with Bathsheba, who, by the way, is pregnant, it's always there. He says, against you, verse 4, and only you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. David is not, he is not going to blame his parents for this. That's a pretty common thing today. Well, pastor, the reason, the reason I am uh, using drugs, cocaine, crack, heroin, meth, I've heard it all. The reason I'm doing it is because you don't know the, the situation I grew up in. So I'm doing this, I'm taking these drugs, or I'm watching this pornography, or I'm involved in this relationship, because especially you don't know the kind of life I grew up in. No, what I do know is that you're making choices. And the fact that you're talking to me about it tells me that you're convicted about those choices. So maybe, just maybe, it's time for us to take responsibility for the choices that we're making. That's exactly what David is doing. David is saying, not only was I born into sin, but I clearly, obviously made the choice to pursue Bathsheba with lust and to lie and to cheat and to try to cover my tracks. 
He says here that the sin was absolutely consuming him. Look at verse, look at verse seven. I'm sorry, verse six. He says, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. What is David saying here? David knows something that every one of us knows that maybe we need to admit this morning. That during that 12-month period of time, on the one hand, David feels like he probably got away with it. But on the other hand, I would imagine that every day he wakes up and every night he pillows his head, he's thinking about it. But I dare would say that what's going on in David's heart, based on what he's saying right here, is that God delights in truth, in the inward man or the inward woman. Here's what David is saying. David is saying that God delights in the reality when we acknowledge the fact that we did it. He, he delights in the fact when we say, no longer are we going to make excuses. No longer are we going to undermine God's word and say that what we did is no big deal. No longer are we going to look at what everybody else is doing and try to justify our own actions. What David is saying here is that God delights when we're finally honest with ourselves. Everybody else is doing it. My mom would say, well, if they jump off a bridge, you're going to follow them, right? That truth still holds, doesn't it? David is now wrestling with what he's done, and he's beginning to speak honestly to himself about that issue. What are you saying to yourself about your sins? What are you saying to yourself about your own rebellion? It's no big deal. It's okay. Nobody's looking. It doesn't hurt anybody. I mean, the list goes on and on. David says God delights when we're finally honest with him, honest with ourselves. What's happening here is his inward life is now matching his outward life. Who he, who he is portraying himself to be and who he is on the inside is now becoming to come together because on the outward man, he's made, trying to make everything by thinking that everything's okay. If you look at David's life, He's trying to portray as though everything is okay when, in fact, it is not okay. God delights when we no longer live a lie. We got a song coming up here in just a moment. That as we worship and sing this song together, I want us to consider the fact that there's some things on the inside of us we may be lying about and lying to ourselves about only to justify our actions and justify our own sins. David says that God delights when we agree with God that what we're doing is absolutely positively wrong. And you, you know what that is. You know what it is. So as we worship together with this song, I, I pray that we would, in these moments, in these moments, realize that we may be very well lying to ourselves, doing exactly what David did, and denying the reality that, that we're missing the mark. Father in heaven, I ask that you would give us guidance and clarity. And Father, in these moments, I pray that, that we could be honest with ourselves. That we would not blame our parents or bring our, blame our upbringing or blame anything else. But that, Father, we would own the fact that, that we missed the mark. And Father, I pray that we would not make excuses and that, Father, you would clean us up. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's, let's talk about some things that David lost.
Because the way he states it in this psalm is he's asking God to restore some things. But I think it's very important for us to see what was lost. Otherwise, David would be calling out for the very things that he's calling out for. Look at verse 7. He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. This idea of purging with hyssop is an Old Testament um, vision of, of taking some, it's a plant, hyssop's almost like, a, it's in the mint family, it's like a herb. But when you bound it together, it looked like a small broom and they could bind it together. And we see it in Exodus 12 when, the, when God told his people to take a lamb and kill it and put the blood above the door casings so that the death angel would pass by during the Passover. They were to use hyssop to put the blood over the door. When we look in Leviticus and the other ceremonial washes, we see hyssop come up over and over again. Here, David is using it and saying, purge me, cleanse me. Take what is pure, apply it to something that is unpure, and the result is clean. So what did David lose? What is he asking for? Well, David knows that he's stained. The guilt, the shame the freedom that he had in God, the freedom that he had to do what God had called him to do, to get up every day and, and, and work and serve and minister and, and go out and fight battles with purpose and meaning has all went away. Because David knows that he's stained, that he's unclean, and, and what he wants more than anything else is to have that stain removed. And he calls out to God and he says, God, take hyssop and clean me up. Because I once, knew, I once knew what it was like to be clean. I once knew what it was like to walk with you. I once knew what it was like to, to not get up every day with this cloud hanging over my head. And have to think about the choices and the lies and the lust and the murder and the death and to see his own kingdom gossiping about what happened because you know they knew. How could they not? And every day, maybe he's having to answer another question. Every day, something's coming up about Uriah. Every day he's having to tell another lie to cover another lie to cover another lie when everyone in his kingdom, especially those closest to David, know exactly what is happening. There's a woman now in his household that was once married to Uriah who was put on the front lines and the soldiers pulled back and he died on the battlefield and no doubt the people of David's court knew, knew that this man was guilty. He's got a cloud hanging over his head. He's got a stain in his life that he can't remove. So that loss of being clean with God, what else did David lose? Well, look at verse 8. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. That verse really sticks out to me. Because one of the ways you can know you're not living in the will of God is to know that your joy is lost. Sure, you come to worship. Sure, you listen to it on the radio. Sure, you've got a devotional that you might read from time to time, but there's no joy in it, is there? You haven't heard the Lord speak to you in a long time. There are a lot of Christians, there are a lot of people who are following Jesus who've come to the conclusion that following Jesus is just this thing where we grit our teeth and just try to get through it on our own. And the reason a lot of people think that is because we have unconfessed sin in our life and we think it's up to us. But there's no joy in following Jesus. There's no gladness in following Jesus. That leaked out of our lives a long time ago. David says, I have lost joy and I've lost gladness and I feel as though every bone in my body has been broken. Sounds like a man who's 
feeling the weight of his own choices. David is a musician. Wrote 73 of our psalms. Wrote a lot more psalms, but certainly 73 of our psalms he wrote. David is a, is, is a man who, who was called to be before Saul to play music for Saul so that Saul could get calmed down a little bit. And David is saying right here that I can't find any joy in the things that used to bring me joy. I used to be able to sit down with this harp and just really enjoy the presence of God, but that's all gone now. Because I traded intimacy with God with intimacy for another man's wife. Thinking that that was going to bring some satisfaction in my life. And can we just say for a moment here, can we just say honestly, for maybe a moment for this 50-year-old man, and maybe he felt young again. Maybe he felt invigorated. Maybe he felt like, man, the greatest night of my life, spending it with Bathsheba. But boy, that didn't last long. That's exactly how Satan's lies and deception work. For just a little while, sin for a season, just for a little while, but boy, off the backside of that, you've got all kinds of problems, and one of them being a loss of joy, a loss of gladness, a loss of purpose, a loss of meaning, that the things that he had done to find joy, find no joy in those anymore. He says, it feels like every bone in my body is broken. Look at what else he says. Look at verse 10 and 11. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew in me a right spirit. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Now that deserves a little bit of explanation because we're in an Old Testament setting here. So the idea is, as David says, don't take the Holy Spirit from me. Now, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit did not live inside the, the individual. But all through the Old Testament, we have these accounts of where the Holy Spirit comes alongside the individual to help them do what God has called them to do. So what David is saying here is David, David is saying to God, God, don't take away the influence and the power of the Holy Spirit in my life. Why would he be praying that? Because he has a perfect example in his past of what it looks like when the Holy Spirit and his presence and power is removed from a person. You remember Saul? That's the king that the people chose, but God didn't choose him. And Saul, in this process of, well, losing his mind, David is invited in to play music, and, and while David is there playing music for this king, this king can find no comfort, this king can find no peace, this king can find no meaning for his life, and, and Saul descends into madness, so much so that one day Saul picks up a, a spear, throws it at David, and pins David to the wall. David watched a man lose the influence and the power of the Holy Spirit in his life, and David at this moment realizes that the same thing could happen to him. And he begs God, do not take it. So what is, he, what is he praying for here? What has he lost? Well, he's lost the intimacy with God. Instead of having a heart for God, he has a heart filled with shame. Instead of having a guy who is on fire to do what God has called him to do, he has a guy now who is hiding his sin, hiding his failures, separated from a holy God, He has a loss of intimacy with God. Look at verse 12 and 13. He says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will return to you. Not only has he had a loss of being clean with God, a loss of joy and gladness and a loss of intimacy, but he's also lost his testimony. 
He's saying here that at one point, David had great influence in the kingdom. When he was following God and being obedient, doing what he was called to do, he had great influence. He could teach people about God, and they would, they would turn their lives and hearts over to God. But since he's been in this season of sin, this 12-month period of time, he's lost all credibility. He's lost his testimony. Now, instead of people looking at David going, wow, what a great man of God, they're looking at David going, you know, he's got that girl in his house now. They're expecting the baby. And then there's that guy that they ended up on the front line that died, and people are saying that, he, that David had something to do with that. Over the years that um, God has allowed me to be in ministry, I cannot, I cannot count on both hands and both feet. I would need your hands and feet to count this up. How many times I have sat at a restaurant, coffee shop, my office, and I'm going to pick on the men here for a minute because this is predominantly the conversations that I've had over the years. I can't tell you how many men I have sat and talked with who, who look at me with tears. I'm talking bawling, tears running down their eyes, and they're looking at me going, I wish I had never went to that motel. I wish that I had never rekindled that fire with that old flame from high school. I wish I had never looked at that stuff online. Because, Pastor, it has wrecked my life. And all I want to do, all I want to do is just go back and make it right. All I want is for my wife to love me the way she used to. All I want is for my, for my integrity to be back in place. All I want is to, to be able to be doing ministry again. Pastors who lost it all. Who wish like everything they could be able to serve in that kind of boat again. But they've got this load of sin and debt and, and, and stuff in their life. And they're looking at me. And here's what they're really hoping. They're hoping that I'm going to reach in my drawer and I'm going to pull out some kind of secret potion that I'm going to pour on their life. And it's just all going to go away. I have no silver bullets, folks. I have no potion up in my office that's going to make the foolishness of your bad decisions go away as fast as they came in. But here's the reality. There's a God who loves you. There's a God whose grace is sufficient. He will forgive you. He will clean you up. He will set you free. And yes, he'll even restore you. But I can tell you this, your circumstances may linger for quite some time. Because God is not mocked. Whatever a man or a woman sows, that shall he reap. David says... Please give back to me my testimony, my influence as a leader. He says, please give that back, because he knows what he's lost. And then finally, look at verse 15 and, 15 and 16 here. He says, oh, Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice where I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. You know what David is praying for here? He's asking that God could restore back that heart of worship that he once had. And folks, you got to get this. you got, you got to wrap your arms around this because this is huge. When that sin is there in our life, when that rebellion is there in our life, it breaks that relationship with God. As, as Christ followers, we have, we have a distance between us and God, and you feel it in everything, in every aspect of your life. You feel it in your prayers. You feel it in Scripture reading. You feel it in corporate worship this morning. You, you feel it. It's, it's weighing on your soul. There's a stain on your life that you can't get off. There's a cloud hanging over your head. But what David says is, is, David says, if there was a sacrifice that I could offer to make this all go away, oh, I'd line them up. I'd line the oxen and the sheep and the birds and whatever else I could, and we'd sacrifice for days. Listen, if there was some money I could throw in an offer plate to make it all go away, oh, you'd do it. You'd write the check, wouldn't you? Oh, if there was, if there was just attending church more, if that could just make it all go away, then I would do it. 
And some of you have bought into the lie that if I just go to church once or twice or a few times a month just to kind of get this covering so that I feel good about myself, what you actually are doing is you're coming, you're getting entertained, and you feel a little bit better about yourself. We sing a good song. You walk right out this door, and you still got the stain. Next week, two weeks from now, two months from now, we go through the same process, but the cloud's still there, isn't it? Here's what David is saying. He says, you don't delight in sacrifice. You don't delight in offerings. Why? Because what God is concerned about is your heart. Your sacrifice is meaningless if your heart is cold and indifferent. You can be motivated by rituals and yet be cold and indifferent on God. See, that's the thing about Western Christianity that really has me concerned is that we can just be engaged in a few things and all the while have this kind of brokenness in our life and never, ever admit it, never own it, never take responsibility for it, and just continue living our life. All the while, the Holy Spirit's throwing that flashing light on our dash going, there's problems here. And what do we do? We just put a piece of tape over it. David says, he lost authentic worship. God doesn't delight in your sacrifices. God doesn't delight in you showing up. God doesn't delight in all of that. If your heart is cold and indifferent and far from him, what difference does it make? It makes none. You're just going through the process of rituals. You're just practicing religion. You're, you're, just, you're just going through the motions. And boy, we can get really good at that. We can put the mask on. How are you? Oh, I'm good. How are you? I'm great. I'm fine. Everything's good. You're good. I'm good. We're all good. No, we're not. We're broken people. I'm broken. Did you know that before I come up here this morning, before I could come, before I could even preach the first message this morning, I had to make something right with a brother. There was something that I got wrong this week. And I knew I got it wrong. And I had to call that brother up and say, hey, I was wrong. I'm sorry. It's all cool, all good, because he's a good brother. Good friend. But I had to make that right before I could ever come out here to this because authentic worship requires us to be authentic with the holy God. Not playing games. This is not a game we're playing here. David is not playing games. The reality is, is I don't want anybody to get to the place where David is. The warning light is on. It's flashing. There's smoke coming out from under the hood. It's time to pull over here and do business with God here. It's time to be honest with him. Time to be real with him. It's time to run to him. Not with rituals, not with more practice, not with, not with more money we're going to throw at God, but to literally run to God and say, God, I have got this wrong. It's not because of my parents. It's not because of my situation. It's not because of my money or lack thereof. I made this choice, and God, I am suffering because of it, and I need your forgiveness. Father, as we consider this moment, Father, may we, may we be honest with you and honest with ourselves. Father, there are people in this room that have experienced quite a bit of loss, but they've not made the connection between the loss and the sin. They've not made the connection between the rituals and their heart. They, they don't see that the choices they're making is exactly what's causing the cold and indifference. Father, now that we have seen that in your word, it demands a response. So, Father, in this time of corporate worship, yet again we ask that you would work in our hearts this morning.
because that's where you do some of your best work. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So David's sin just didn't impact him. Look at these last two verses, and it's, it seems kind of odd that, that David would include this last phrase of this psalm. But then when we think about it, it's not odd at all. Verse 18, he says, Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. You know what David is saying here? Out of, out of what he just said about this brokenness in his worship and his intimacy with God, and the fact that, that, that David, during that 12-month period of time, no doubt was going and worshiping God corporately. No doubt that he was offering prayers. No doubt he was still going through the motions of the rituals. And people were seeing him do it. But isn't it interesting that by the time he gets to the end of his prayer, he's asking God to do something corporately. The majority of this psalm, what he's been talking about is, God, do something in my life. Wash me, cleanse me, blot out my transgressions. Give me freedom. Restore back that intimacy. Give me the opportunity to worship and restore back my witness. But down here, he prays on behalf of Zion. Why is that? Because you've got to understand that your sin just doesn't affect you. Now, we're not all leading a country of, of God's people, but you're leading something. You're leading your family. Maybe you're a leader at work. Uh, you're a leader in the community. You're a leader, make no mistake about it. And either you're a good one or a bad one. Either you're leading people correctly with honesty and integrity and character, or, or you're taking advantage of people, using them as tools and manipulating them for your own gain. David recognizes here that in all of this sin and brokenness, where he says it feels like my bones have been broken, he realizes that the city of Zion, the people of God has suffered because of his foolishness. You see, this is a whole new realm of taking responsibility. Not only am I taking responsibility for the fact that I got a guy killed so that I could have his wife, and that all, that all began because of lust that I had in my heart and the lies that I told to cover it. It's a whole other ball game to say, I own that, but to say that that has caused Ripple effect all through my leadership and all through my home and all through my family and all through my, the people that I'm called to lead. There's a reason that the Bible tells us as leaders, if you're serving and leading, to be careful with that, that we're held to a higher standard. The reason is, is that a failure, a moral failure in a leader has an effect for the people that are being led. David says here, God, please. Now, I think by the time we get to verse 18, David is sensing that God is forgiving him. He's sensing that stain being cleaned. I think by the time he gets to verse 18, he's feeling the weight of what he's done come off of his shoulders. Now, the circumstances are going to be around for a while. Matter of fact, the worst part of his leadership and the worst part of his kingdom work is about to happen. There is going to be chaos in his family for the rest of his life. Circumstances. For the rest of David's natural life and the role that he's got, he's going to have family that try to, well, undermine him. There's going to be a, a son that tries to take him out. I mean, it's chaos from this point on. Absolute chaos. David says here, because I was doing rituals without any heart, the people are following my lead. The people are going, well, now, if David can worship, and yet we know he's got this in his background, we know that he's broken at least two commandments, if not more, three, certainly. 
if, if David can lead then, and have that in his background, then why can't I? The, the nation of Israel was suffering because of this king's choices. His credibility was shot. So he says to God, God, would you please do good design once again? Could you, could you build up the walls? In other words, build up the city. Make it to what it once was before I made this mess of it. Dads, you got influence in your home. Moms, you got influence in your home. Teachers, you got influence in the classroom. Community leaders, you got influence in the community. You, you've worked years to gain that influence. Don't throw it away. Don't throw it away while you pursue your flesh. Because what you can throw away in a minute, what you can throw away in a couple of minutes may never be restored the way it was before. Your integrity and your character matter. David says, then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. In other words, once again, Lord, as you clean me up, as, as, as you make me right with you and I lead out of that, then what's going to happen is the nation is going to be able to worship you not with rituals, not just showing up, not just going through the motions, but with a heart that is passionate for a holy God because they see it in their leader. I can't lead this church any further in devotion to God than I am myself. That's why I have to be very, very careful with my integrity, my character, and I have to do the right thing for the right reasons, even when it hurts. David says there's a corporate nature to your sin. You're telling yourself that this is not hurting anybody, but, but you, this is not hurting anybody. Everybody's doing it. It's just about me and what I've done. It's not. Your community's suffering. Your church is suffering. Your family is suffering because of the choices that you're making. As we close out today, there may be there may be this time where the Lord's saying to you, it's time for you to do something publicly about this. Because you've been, elite, you've been hiding with this for so long. You've been keeping this hidden for so long. It's time to bring this thing out into the light. Not that you're going to come up here and tell everybody your whole closet full of stuff, but you're going to get along with the Lord, whether that's up here or where you're sitting. And the inward man, the inward woman is going to be honest. Going to be honest with God. Say, God, I've made a mess of things. The only way this church can accomplish this mission is that we have people, leaders, servants, that are honest before God. This last song, this is the time to be honest. Father in heaven, your goodness and your grace is sufficient. There's nothing, absolutely nothing, that any person in this room or online that has done that's beyond what David has done or puts them in a place where grace is not available or sufficient. So all those lies just need to be canceled out of their minds right now. But Lord, we can be honest with you. We can be open with you. Shine light in dark places. Shine light in the crevices of our heart and our existence, Lord, that haven't had light in a long time. Bring to our remembrance the things that we've done. And may we not cover them over with excuses or lies to ourselves. And in this moment of invitation during this song, that we would be honest with you, that we'd be real with you, and we would deal with what needs to be dealt with through your power and your grace and your forgiveness. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist.